group of more than 300 maple producers. These producers make over 50,000 gallons of maple syrup every year. I am Nicaresco. A dry evening with temperatures dropping into the 50s by sunset. Mostly clear tonight with lows in the upper 30s to low 40s. I'm Nicaresco on 101.5 WHMP. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And welcome to the Afternoon Buzz. I'm Dan Torres in for Buzz Eisenberg, who is away today. And before I send it to you, Brian, I just want to mention that Paul, Representative Paul Mark will be on the show tomorrow here at 4 o'clock to talk with Buzz. So... Hopefully you'll tune into that. Always, Brian. Always good to hear from our elected representatives. And speaking of elected representatives, uh, Tuesday coming right up, vote, vote, vote as if your life depends on it because our democracy does depend on it. So it's really important to be getting out there and watch as those interesting election returns start coming in on Tuesday night and the control of the House, the control of the Senate, the control of our future is at stake. If you know folks in some of those hot states out there, Georgia and Pennsylvania and Arizona, give them a call, get them out to vote, and uh, we will watch and wait and hope. Uh, one thing that gives me hope for the future of the world is the activism of young people. And I've been fortunate enough on this show to bring in a bunch of young climate activists to talk about their work and the wonderful activities that they're involved in. And this afternoon, we are so fortunate to have with us Morgan Brown McNeil. Morgan is 15 years old. She is a Northampton High School student and has been very active in the Western Mass Youth Climate Leadership Program, one of the Mass Audubon activists. Morgan, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. So Morgan, there's an ancient curse, Chinese curse, or is it a blessing? that goes something like this. May you live in interesting times. And we all know these are incredibly interesting and challenging times that really demand activism for our young folks. And there are lots of issues out there, racial justice, income inequality, women's rights, voters' rights, civil rights, gun violence, the list goes on and on and on. You've chosen to be a climate activist. Can you tell us why and how you got into the work that you're doing? Um, yeah, I think a lot of what uh, I'm doing is not just about climate, um, although it is majorly what I'm um, focusing on. I think it's really important to realize the interconnected nature of all of these issues and how we are all affected by climate change and how it kind of is the uh, connector of all of the issues that you just mentioned and how by everyone being connected, it is... Uh, connecting us all. And I think a lot of uh, why I'm doing this work is because it's terrifying and because I am realizing as a teenager that my life may not be as long as my parents' lives and that I don't want that to be the case. And so I'm taking as much initiative as I can to change that. And um, I found that climate activism and the work that I'm doing is the best way for me to do that. Let's talk about that, that terror for a moment, the American Psychiatric Association, one of their psychiatrists, I'm going to quote them, they said, be under no illusions. The climate-aware generation of kids are beside themselves, scared, angry, grief-stricken. They're experiencing inaction as assault. Uh, how do you weather the emotional impact of this ecological anxiety, eco-anxiety, this you know, being climate aware means climate depressed almost. How do you deal mm -hmm. with, with that? That's the first question. Mm -hmm. And the second is, how do you help your peers and other kids deal with that? Yeah, um, this is an issue that we discuss a lot in our meetings, our planning meetings, um, because it's definitely a true fact that all of us are differently affected by this crisis, but we are all definitely experiencing the mental um like weight of these like events um, in our time today. But um, yeah, we do a lot of like discussion of our feelings um, and of how we are responding to these issues because saying things out loud is a very easy way to kind of 
connect with each other and make it easier um, within our group to like deal with these issues together rather than alone. Um, but it's really hard because you can't always just figure it out by talking because it's not going to go away. Um, the climate crisis doesn't have like a nine to five schedule. It's constant. Um, so like you think about it when you're going to bed and when you're brushing your teeth in the morning and it's not, it's, it's, it doesn't have an off button. Unfortunately, that's true. But maybe fortunately, that's true. It keeps you thinking about it all the time. What what do you lose sleep over the most when it comes to climate chaos? Um, I think I think the thing that I lose sleep the most over, which is kind of sad, is that we have the capacity to fix this, and we have the we have the systems in place to turn this ship around, but we aren't. We aren't, and we aren't taking the, we aren't taking the time to change things, and we aren't not like as a society as a whole, but it's, uh, our politicians and our leaders are not changing things when they could be changed, which feels the most terrifying and the most like betrayal. And you're you're so right. It's not like. There aren't solutions out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are. You know, getting rid of oil and coal and that and gas and um, flipping our energy sources to renewable energies. I mean, there's such valid, exciting, job-creating, life-affirming solutions. Um, let's talk about how to get people involved. And one thing, Morgan, I was really interested in recently was um, watching the news of the recent vandalizing of of, uh, of paintings well-known European paintings of Vermeer, of Monet, of Van Gogh um, by climate activists in major museums where they threw, I think, mashed potatoes, tomato soup on some of these, these paintings. And what, it, it, what they were saying is that facts don't always matter. It is the, you know, going for the, the, going for the heart. And in defacing paintings brings this visceral uh, response from people. And if you can transform that you know, this, you know, I, I, I vandalized a painting, but we're vandalizing the world. And I guess as tactics, how do you feel about that? Is that a justifiable tactic? Did that turn people off? Your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I think what they're trying to say or trying to prove is that they're willing to go all the way and they're willing to destroy things that people, like the rest of the society, finds, um, like, incredibly beautiful and important. Um in order to save their lives. Um, and I think that it's a really interesting tactic because sometimes facts don't necessarily um, like mean very much to a lot of people because you might have studied a class in high school and forgotten all of the t facts that you learned and you may not have studied the subject at all. So these numbers that we are hearing from the news and from scientists may not mean anything to you. Um, but by destroying a painting, like for the fight for the climate, it makes you, it makes you worried, and it makes you angry, because you don't want it to be destroyed. But then you realize why they're doing it, and you realize that you are destroying the greater climate as a whole, which is so much more important than a painting. It's a really, really interesting issue, and we'll see how that that plays out. And in light of the big upcoming United Nations. Climate change convention that's 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 coming up. We certainly need all the awareness that uh, we can get. We're talking with Morgan Brown McNeil. Morgan is a 15-year-old climate activist. Uh, I got your name, Morgan, from Mass Audubon, from mm -hmm. Brittany uh, Goodermuth, who is the climate change education program coordinator. And let let me read what uh, what Brittany said about you. She said, Morgan writes incredibly thoughtful land acknowledgments, angry climate poetry, and is a fantastic facilitator. Uh, so what struck me, well, all three of those things sound really intriguing, but let's go with the angry climate poetry. And let me, let me uh, lead with, with one other thing. You were at a, a youth climate conference not too long ago, and the keynote speaker didn't show up. Folks were scrambling, I guess. What do we do? What do we do? And Morgan stepped up and said, I've got this. You went into a corner, wrote an angry poem, and brought the house down. So 
Tell us a little bit about how you pulled that off. And do you have a poem that you can read for us? Uh, yes, I do, actually. Um, yeah, I think part of being a climate activist is being able to respond on the spot to an issue or a certain topic that has come up very quickly. Um, and so I used those skills and my love of writing and of poetry to sort of pull everything together at the last minute. Um, yeah, this presentation was not very long, but uh, it moved a lot of people, so I've heard. Um, and yeah, I have a poem here today. It's called, How Can You Sleep? I have seen the ways you pretend not to care, the ways that you act like the system is fair, but this crisis will leave no lives to spare. So tell me, how can you sleep? 1940, a war-filled time. We thought it was over in 1945, but that was only the beginning. The baby boom was alive. With all of that noise, how did you sleep? Exxon, the monster of hell and not heaven, knew we were dying since 1977. Silence was their pain. It didn't plan. It didn't come to reckon. I wonder, how did they sleep? This world was once yours, but it's not anymore. You've been in charge since 1984. You say it's our job, but the guilt is all yours. So tell me, how can you sleep? It's 2000 at last and the world's up in smoke. The cities are drowning our cities while they choke. The oceans are drowning our cities while they choke. You keep saying it's nothing, just a bad joke. But tell me, how can you sleep? Does anyone care that the world's up in flames? And what does it matter when there's no visible change? The people in charge say there's no one to blame, but tell me, how can you sleep? It's 2020, but that's not yet how we see. This fight's against time, not between you and me. Your opinion is blurred by catastrophe, so tell me, how can you sleep? They say 2030's the year we're all doomed. If we don't reach 2.5 Celsius soon, they'll be sending the billionaires off to the moon. Watching from up there, tell me, how will you sleep? In 21,000, will I be gone? Extinction. What a lonely song. But you will be singing it all the night long, because both of us know you won't sleep. Oh my goodness, I have goosebumps. Poetry can be a really powerful medium for getting the climate change message across. And we just heard from our now our afternoon buzz resident poet. Can we call you that? Uh, why not, right? Morgan Brown McNeil, 15, from uh, Northampton High School, climate activist. Are you optimistic? Do you think we're going to dig ourselves out of this hole that we keep digging deeper? It's It's hard. I was optimistic in the beginning when I first joined these organizations, but um, my my hope for the future has started to slowly go downhill. I think I think there's definitely still a chance, and there's no need to give up hope because if we do, then we definitely have no chance. But it's it's hard to be optimistic when nobody seems to be listening to you. Well, it gets me optimistic to hear you speak and recite your poetry, and here you recount some of the activists, uh, organizations that you're working for and the, and, the, and the things that you're doing. So thank you for that. We're talking with, Mor Mor with Morgan Brown McNeil. Uh, Morgan is 15 years old and is a Northampton High School student, part of the Western Mass Youth Climate Leadership Program, and we will return with a con continue our conversation about climate activism and uh, after a few short words, we'll be right back. Cause you even got herself as enemies and once This the is the afternoon buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. You needing me. You know I'm not your friend without some greenery. Walking, wearing feathers, Peter. An ensemble of women, BIPOC, femme, dedicated to the transformative power of dance and social justice. 
The UMass Fine Arts Center presents the Ananya Dance Theater in Dostok, I Wish You Me. Dostok, I Wish You Me explores the cross-generational love that carries global communities through difficult migrations, reimagining the possibilities of freedom. Led by acclaimed dancer, choreographer, and educator Ananya Chatterjee, the Ananya Dance Theater is a dynamic ensemble. The Chicago Tribune says, more than most contemporary Indian dance choreographers, Chatterjee has completely transformed her genre. Get tickets at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. The Ananya Dance Theater, Dasta, I Wish You Me. Thursday, November 3rd, 7.30 p.m., Bowker Auditorium at UMass. Hello, I'm Sheriff Patrick Kaling, and I'm honored to be the Democratic nominee for Hampshire County Sheriff. I hope you will stay with me and vote Kaling in the general election. Early voting starts on October 22nd, and Election Day is November 8th. And remember, a vote for me is a vote for a kind, compassionate, and progressive future for corrections in Hampshire County. This ad was paid for by the committee to elect Patrick J. Kaling. Hello, this is Linda DeGillis, Vice President and Trust Officer at Greenfield Savings Bank Wealth Management and Trust Services. Many of our customers are surviving spouses who have found themselves suddenly in charge of their household's financial savings and investments, which had previously been handled exclusively by their late spouse. A number of our female customers have told us that one of the reasons they moved their accounts to GSB Wealth Management and Trust Services was because they felt patronized or talked down to by their spouse's financial advisor. At GSB Wealth Management and Trust Services, our team of professionals will always treat you with respect and compassion. If you are looking for portfolio management, estate settlement services, or trust services, please call us, Greenfield Savings Bank Wealth Management and Trust Services at 413-775-775. 8335. That's 413-775-8335. Or stop into any GSB office or contact us online through the wealth management section at greenfieldsavings.com. Thank you. Missed an episode of The Bill Newman Show? Want to revisit a conversation from legendary civil rights attorney from Ashfield, Buzz Eisenberg? Click on podcasts at whmp.com. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP. It's the sound of life in the Valley. whmp.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we are back. We're talking with Morgan Brown McNeil. Morgan is 15 years old. She's a climate activist from Northampton High School. And during the break, we were talking about your peers and interaction with your peers. Are, are your students, friends, acquaintances freaking out about this? Is this a topic of concern? Is this what you talk about? What's going on in terms of the general buzz at the high school? Yeah, I think the people who I talk to on a daily basis don't seem super concerned with this issue, or they don't care, or they just don't know. Um, there is an, envi- an NHS environmental club. They do a lot of really great work, but um, yeah, it's not a huge issue to a lot of people. No one is treating it like a crisis. And and so uh, this is the billion-dollar question, right? How do you get people to treat it like a crisis? How do you get people to understand the gravity of the situation and do something about it? Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned earlier, um, I think numbers don't always mean a lot to people. Um, but a lot of what our society reacts most to is uh, visuals and social media, obviously, Um but we see images of the climate crisis, like a melting ice caps or um, fires or, yeah, those issues that we see and we think, oh, my gosh, that's horrible. But it's something that we've seen so often now that it doesn't – it's not incredibly terrifying or crazy. It's just normal. Um, and a really incredible way that I've seen people change – people's minds be changed or motivation um, or become like motivated. I've is um, through art and through creativity and um, 
uh, Extinction Rebellion does a lot of really incredible work um, that moves people in a, di a different sort of way. Um, rather than just marching, they'll send them, they'll send uh, the greater society an image that is like makes your heart beat a little faster. Um, like in terms of, yeah, just fear. I've seen, um, yeah, I've seen an image that was uh, three teenagers standing on blocks of ice with nooses around their necks um, and the ice was melting. And that means something different to people than watching icebergs melt so far away from home. Um, that means something different to a lot of people and I think that's really moving. Three teenagers standing on a block of ice with nooses around their neck, that is a terrifying image. Mm -hmm. And if that doesn't get people motivated to do something, I'm not sure what what will. Um, one thing that really impressed me, Morgan, with the work that you've done is that you were one of the organizers for the Little Leaders Summer Climate Convention. These are 10 to 12-year-old kids who are interested in getting involved in direct climate action, um, organized by Mass Audubon and the Hitchcock Center for the Environment in Amherst. How did that go? And, and were you impressed with the level of knowledge and sophistication and let's do it of these young leaders, or little leaders, as you call them? Yeah, it went really, really well. Um, we're still in contact with uh, most of them. Um, they were very aware of these issues. They knew a lot, but they were also willing to ask questions, which is something that a lot of adults don't feel comfortable doing. Um, and they were ready to learn. Um, and they were, in terms of sophistication, they were incredibly um, sophisticated and, uh, yeah, they had inc great ideas. They were coming up with all sorts of things. Um, yeah, it went really, really well. That's so exciting. So we must get the younger generation involved. And as terrifying it is as it is for me to even think about explaining climate change to 10 to 12-year-olds, the fact that you were able to do it at 15 years old, it might be a much better messenger because you're you're still an adult to them, but you're closer to their age, and that can, that can make a big difference. We're unfortunately running out of time. Do you have specific recommendations for our listening audience, a take-home message or things folks listening can do in their own lives to make a big difference? Yeah, I would say one of the best ways to get involved is to research organizations, local organizations near you that you can get involved in, um, and to just reach out and ask if they're willing to take on anyone else. Um, a lot of these things are volunteer, however, um, which is hard for people who work long hours or are unable to uh, get involved in any other way. Um, I will say we are kind of past the point of reduce, reuse, recycle. That's not going to do a whole lot at this point unless all of us all together boycott like landfills and meat industries. Um, but I think right now what we need to work towards is a greater change, a systemic change. And certainly one way we can do that is to vote. Yes. We had um, Jim McGovern on the show not too long ago but talking about some of the agricultural work and sustainability work he's doing. And we have some wonderful folks representing us in Congress and uh, at the state, local level. So we really want to get out and express our support for folks who are doing the good work, whether it's in Washington, D.C. or in Boston or in our own cities and towns. We've been talking with Morgan Brown McNeil. Morgan is a climate activist from Northampton High School uh, and is giving at least me hope uh, for the future. When I see young people getting involved in, in, uh, uh, in a wonderful poet, too, talking about ways to get the message out through visual imagery, and your poetry is certainly striking in its imagery. How do they sleep? Uh, so thank you so much, Morgan, for joining us. Thank you for having me. And stick around. We'll be right back with who, Dan? Who's coming in? Uh, Buzz is, you're going to have to stay tuned to it. <laughs> to listen. Oh, it's a surprise. <laughs> no, there, there's actually a talk going on at UMass the, about privatization of everything. So it's the uh -huh. author of that. Oh, nice. Yeah. Good. All right. Thank All right, you. His name escapes me. I know it's Donald's in it. I just don't have Donald, it in front of me. Donald something for the next half hour. So stick around and we'll be right back.
This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Now the latest from WHMP, I'm Monty Belmonte in for Jess Tyler. Following the death of an employee working at a cannabis cultivation facility in Holyoke, the city council decided to vote to pursue additional health and safety measures at these facilities. Councilors voted unanimously to seek authorization from the State Cannabis Control Commission to have the local Board of Health inspect large cultivation cannabis facilities. In January, an employee at True Leave Holyoke died of occupational asthma due to ground cannabis in her lungs. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration fined the company $35,000 and determined that employees were not provided effective information and training on the hazards involved in the cannabis grinding and production process. If you were stuck in standstill traffic on the Mass Pike last night, it was because a tractor-trailer caught fire and closed all eastbound lanes. Westfield and West Springfield Fire Departments responded to the blaze just after 7 p.m. Traffic was at a standstill until the fire was extinguished. The Potato Festival is back. After several years off, Smirowski Farm reviving the festival for its sixth year in honor of everyone's favorite root vegetable. The public invited to visit the family farm on River Road in Sunderland and sample the baked potato bar, french fries, and some of the Smirowski traditional Polish dishes. The Irving Police Department has a new recruit, a one-year-old bloodhound named Ziva. Officer Laura Gordon previously ran the Greenfield Police Department's Comfort Dog Program and soon after joining the Irving Police Department initiated the revival of the Irving Police Department canine program. The Irving Police haven't had a canine program since another bloodhound, Badge, retired in 2014. The Greenfield Recorder reports Ziva is expected to serve as both a tracking and comfort dog. Hi, I'm Nick Oresco. A dry evening with temperatures dropping into the 50s by sunset. Mostly clear tonight with lows in the upper 30s to low 40s. I'm Nick Oresco on 101.5 WHMP. Are you clear about ballot question one? Join us when we speak with Massachusetts Teachers Association President Max Page about question one, the fair share amendment. Plus, Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid with breaking news from outer space and Heartbeat with Donna Belcastle. All of this beginning Friday at 9 o'clock. Bill Newman, weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. I'm not sure if opposites attract, but most couples differ greatly in their views about household finances. I'm Frances Rayum, the money doctor, with Hug Your Money. Money is a very volatile topic, and most seem to either argue about it or rarely discuss it. A sort of division of labor emerges, one partner becoming the steward of household finances, the other less directly involved. This arrangement may work until a stressor is introduced, college expenses, budgeting issues, impending retirement, etc. That's when sparks can fly. Each person's perspective is quite different, and it's likely only a short-term solution if any will arise. The HUG plan presents an easy-to-follow, long-term solution that helps get both partners on the same page, alleviating stress and inspiring them to manage their finances successfully. I'm Frances Ray, I'm the Money Doctor. We now offer advanced tools and financial coaching using our patented system, all under one umbrella. For more information and to schedule your free consultation, visit our website at HugYourMoney.com. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Downtown Sounds? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Downtown Sounds Workers Co-op, a music store with new and used instruments and lessons. Live online or live in person. First lessons free when you buy an instrument. Plus, repairs of musical instruments and equipment. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And good afternoon and thank you for joining us. I'm quite excited there is a uh, workshop that's being uh, done at UMass at the Labor Center at 5 o'clock today. Um, and it, it's um, done by, it's going to be done by a uh, the author Donald Cohen of a book that's called The Privatization of everything and i can't wait to hear more about it hello donald 
Hello, thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. You're going to be busy today. Um, first of all, just tell us so folks can make arrangements where they can find out how do they register for this workshop. Uh, well, I'm the guest, you know, and I live actually in Los Angeles, so I'm visiting. Um, I assume you would get on the you you know the UMass Labor Center website. Actually, I'm not sure. <laughs> Neither of us are sure. <laughs> I apologize. You'll find out by contacting the UMass. I know where I have to be, and it, it's going to be at five o'clock. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. So, um, you you wrote a book called "The Privatization of Everything." How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America, and How We Can Fight Back. It is political season, election season, and I think this runs to the heart of what our quote-unquote democracy is all about. So, please, tell us about your book. Well, it's, you know, know, and I run an organization, I lead an organization called In the Public Interest that works on these issues and have been doing so for you know, 10 or 12 or more years. And so the book talks about lots of things we all care about, health care, food, transportation, the weather, uh, jobs, science, so, you know, public education, um, kind of goes through the, all of the, you know, many of the things that we count on that are public goods and public services. And what the book does is both, it gives examples about uh, uh, two levels. It gives examples of how private interests are getting control of those things, and uh, of those things that we all count on, and that we all, and that we all need, um, and what the impacts are, you know, and what happens to, you know, what happens to services, and what happens to jobs, and what happens to, um, you know, to the things that we want. But the larger, and all that is tied together. There's lots of examples. When you name a book, the privatization of everything, you you know right off the bat, it's pretty broad in terms of subject area. But the larger issues are, are really what tie the book together, and that is, you know, it's kind of you implied. What I've come to understand over the years doing this work is that privatization is an assault on democracy at its core. And the, the intent of the book is to tie the individual things, private prisons with private water systems and all that, to those larger ideas. And I think we, I think we do a, a fine job of it. Um, I could give an example or two if that would help make it clearer for folks. Would, would that be helpful? That would be very helpful. Yeah. So, um, it, it, two examples. Uh, Chicago in 2008, you know, the worst of the Great Recession, all cities across the country bleeding ready and having a hard time. Um, they, uh, a consortium, of private consortium, including Morgan Stanley, uh, a sovereign wealth fund from a Middle Eastern country, and a national parking company, made a proposal to the city of Chicago that they would give the city $1.1 billion up front in cash in exchange for this, for control of the city's 36,000 parking meters for 75 years. They proposed it on a Friday. The vote happened on a Tuesday. They took the deal. Desperate governments do desperate things. Um, and so what became true after the fact? What terrible financial deal, just, you know, you don't borrow money on your future parking meter revenues for 75 years until right. 2083. We don't even know if we'll be driving. But here's what's more important: for the you know up until 2083, the remaining of this you know the remaining years of this contract, if the city wants to eliminate parking spots, either temporarily for a street fair or more importantly, uh, permanently for you know dedicated bus lanes. Don't or tell me it has to ask mall, permission. No, worse, it has to buy them back. <sighs> So think about it. So here's the point. You remember the city council and you want to, you know, you're concerned about climate change. You want to get people out of cars and into mass transit. And but it's going to cost you a whole lot of money to buy those spots back and you have competing demands. You might not even make the proposal. So the, the elected leaders of that city's hands are tied. You know, they're in handcuffs by a 75 year, you know, legally binding contract. So that's what I mean is, uh, you know, when, they, when I say it's, a, it's assault on democracy. Now that, that deal is horrible. Everybody in Chicago hates it. Of course, the prices went way up. You know, the private operators made their money back in 15 years. It's a terrible financial deal. Uh, money that could have all been used to do things for the people of Chicago, um, but instead going out of town. Um, 
So, but, it, you know, terrible deal. Everybody hates it. But, you know, the features of contracts in all kinds of services, you know, you see some of those same things. You know, water and trash contracts that require a certain amount, uh, incinerator contracts for trash incineration that require a certain amount of trash all the time that has stopped uh, communities from recycling because they needed to keep filling the, the, you know, they were contractually obligated to, um, you know, keep the trash flowing into the incinerator. Yeah, this story, now I get it. I did not know that about the Chicago parking meters. Um, and it, it, I wish I could say it took my breath away, but um, so often we see what contractors in our wars. Yeah. I've, for 12 years I represented uh, eight Guantanamo detainees, so I go back and forth from that dreadful base uh, on Cuban soil that we lease in perpetuity for $3,500 a year. And uh, what I saw was contractor after contractor raking it in at, because bases are exempted as employees, the laborers who were, you know, people from this island or that island and people of color, and they were getting paid a dollar eighty-five an hour. Um, yep. And as the contractors had these enormous contracts for everything from, you know, trucks to boats to yep. uniforms. Yep. That's right. So, That's right. so privatization isn't that part and parcel of what our "quote unquote" democracy, our, our capitalism, is, right? Well, it, it, I mean, this form of now governments all over the world contract for things, right? I mean, whether they're social democrats or not, the question is who's in charge, right? And who, what authority do we hand over to the private operators, right? That's I think is the core issue because you know we all contract for something. But if we allow them to gouge us, right, then, you know, and if we don't watch them, if we don't have good standards in the contract, if we don't make sure we're getting what we're paying for, you know, that's the, that's the, the, the meta issue because government, and everybody contracts for things. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the challenge, of course, is when you hand it over, you don't have those standards. So, I mean, let me, let me say it differently. A lot of, th- you know, uh, Companies go to mayors and governors and all sorts of, you know, policymakers and say, we can do it cheaper and better and faster, right? Because, of course, business is more efficient. Of course, we believe that it's a fact. It has become a fact. Whether it's true or not is irrelevant. So, but what's important, Ted, so let's say you're, a, you know, you're a private prison company and you say you can do it cheaper. But first thing you got to realize is that, you know, the corporations, which are publicly traded, have extremely high executive compensation for their top managers. They have de- dividends to, you know, to shareholders. They have debt service because they always buy, they're buying up other businesses. And, you know, and then, and then they want profit, you know, retain profit that they can use to grow. So they're taking that money off the top, but they still say they can do it cheaper. Well, because they're, quote, more efficient, well, it's worth asking the question, what do you mean by efficient? You're taking all this money out. Efficiency is just less money in for more out, you know, for better or more out. And it's a very finite list of things that you can spend less on. So we always say efficiency, hmm, maybe, but it might just be spending less. And we, and what you're spending less in may not be in our interest. In private prisons, there's, it's fewer corrections officers, and they do it. There was a prison, a juvenile detention facility in, in um, Mississippi, I believe, had one to 60 is their ratio between corrections officers and inmates. Mm. I mean, and bad things happened. Mm. So you could do that. You could pay the workers less. You could do that, which they do. And that creates other issues and problems, turnover and all sorts of things. You could use crappier, you know, poor quality stuff. They outsource the food services in a bunch of states in Ohio and in Michigan, and food had maggots in it. You know, they were violent, you know, inmates were very unhappy. I mean, so it's when they say efficient, because this is like, okay, the business good, government bad, you got to say, what does that really mean? And so that's the question about contracting. Don't believe what they say. Ask the hard questions. Well, we are speaking with Donald Cohen, um, the author of The Privatization of Everything. Now, Donald, you are going to be giving a workshop very soon after this uh discussion that we're having at five o'clock. It's at the Labor Center at the University of Massachusetts, folks. It's, um, this is a workshop with Donald Cohen, the author of Privatization of Everything. And what will your workshop be about? Well, I think it'll be about two things. One is to you know, connect the dots on the larger issues 
of, you know, because most people think of privatization in what they know about, whether it's outsourcing, you know, uh, custodial and food at the university or selling off the dorms, you in public-private partnership with the dorms, or, you know, or or if they're in, in K-12 education, concerned about the growth of charter schools or vouchers and other things. So my first point is to kind of tie it all together in the larger ideas, an assault on democracy, how much being, how much is being extracted from, you know, from public uh, assets that we that we need for ourselves and things like that. So do that, larger ideas. And then we'll talk about how to pay attention for activists and organizers and researchers. And um, so that you know, you know, you see a possible proposal to privatize or outsource something. That's number one. That's the first thing you got to know is how to pay attention. Because um, you you know, uh, often it doesn't become clear until it's too late. The decision's already been fundamentally made. And then, so that's pay attention to is how to engage in the entire procurement process to prevent it from happening. Meaning the first discussions to then the, and our, you know, request for qualifications and then maybe a request for proposal and maybe there's some sort of analysis and people got to be involved at each step to make sure it's uh, not done or done right. Or, you know, or, or possibly seize an opportunity to, you know, to reform and make their government agency even do better. That could come, that could be an outcome here. But it's, it's, it's about being, uh, paying really close attention to the, to the decision making process and the process of analysis. And there's two kind of decision making processes. There's the formal, you know, there'd be a request for proposal and all that. And then there's the informal, who's influencing and how are they influencing the decision makers? That, of course, is equally as important. Okay, we are going to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to ask Donald Cohen, the co-author of Privatization of Everything. Um, I'm going to ask Donald about this subtitle, which is How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and, my favorite question, How We Can Fight Back. We'll be back with Donald Cohen right after these messages. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Meet with Mira Vista virtually and make your next career move a reality. On Monday, November 7th, Mira Vista Behavioral Health Center is hosting a virtual hiring event for RNs and LPNs. Mira Vista offers a great working environment, competitive wages and benefits, and sign-on bonuses up to $15,000. A variety of full-time, part-time, and per diem shifts are available. Join a caring team of professionals dedicated to making a life-changing difference for individuals affected by mental health and substance abuse. For details, visit miravistabhc.care. You want the very best opportunities for your child. Given the amount of time children spend in school each day, you want your child to be inspired, to be engaged, to love going to school. At Bement, each student experiences this every day. The Bement School in Deerfield is a close-knit community of students from around the valley and across the globe. Kindergarten through ninth grade, learning from each other in the classroom, rooting for each other on the athletic field, and celebrating each other on the stage. We are local, we are global, and our differences make us stronger. We interact face-to-face, share meals together every day, and open doors for one another. The true essence of your child's time at Bement is preparing for a life of integrity, of significance, of joy. Financial aid and transportation are available to help make a Bement school education possible. I'm Kim Laughlin, Director of Admission. Please contact me or visit our website. Bement will be the best investment you make in your child's future. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Cohen, the co-author, along with Alan McCallion, of The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. In a very short amount of time, uh, Donald is going to be busily um, doing a workshop at the Labor Center at uh, University of Massachusetts, our fantastic resource, our labor center. And um, the workshop will be about the privatization of everything. So um, you folks, you can rush and find out how to get there and uh, be there for 5 o'clock. Donald, just before the break, I asked you about the last clause in your subtitle and how we can fight back. How can we fight back? 
Well, there's a few things I'd say. So one is um, it's a long, it's both a long game and a short game. So first thing to remember is that you know conservatives in America have spent forty plus years attacking both the idea and the institution of government. Right, the government is you know is the enemy, and you know Reagan said, Clinton said, the era of big government is over. Sort of a a, a um, rhetorical attack on the idea of government. But also on the institution, cutting taxes so you can't provide good services or privatizing things. So we have to remember that because we we have to you know we're we're swimming upstream in terms of people you know attitudes in America. So that's number one. To remember that this, this, the second um, again sort of the ideal level is I um, refer to it as we need to surface the state. Everything there you look around yourself. You know the room that you're in, and the, you know there is government and public action all around you. The paint on your walls used to have lead in it, but it was the public. It was a law and regulations that changed that. The air in LA where I live used to be is cleaner now. I mean, literally, no matter where you look, there's government and public services and public action around you, and we need to make people more aware of that because it's not all bad, right? There's actually a lot of good stuff that's happened in this country that and that can, we can only do because we're doing it together. Those are, these are public goods. Um, so that's, and I think it's super important because if people hate government, uh, we need to say, well, you know, we need to sort of push back on that. We need to reform what's not working, but we need to lift up what is working. You know, the second thing we need to, uh, maybe not sequencing is, may not be right, but we have to remember what the public purpose of these things are. Like education is not just about educating your kid. It's about it creating an educated America, and what that mean and what that means is that it's in all of our interest, whether you have children or grandchildren or not, to have every kid educated. Right? We are completely. We, you know, it's a fact that we are interdependent. It's not just a value. I mean, we learned that in COVID, right? Sure. But I came to understand the health of all of us depended on the health of each of us. So, so we have to sort of get away from public services or commodities. That you know that you get if you can pay for. No, we need we we need everyone to have them. Everyone should have them so that they live a better life. But we all need for everyone to have them, and we need to understand that. Transportation is about mobility. We need people to be able to move around for you know for commerce, for schools, for for everything. Right? Health. We need everyone to be healthy. The air. We need every you know the air to be clean. Water. Everybody needs clean water. We need everyone to have those things. And the only way to do those things is through government involvement, government action and government involvement and government control. Makes sense. Yeah. Water, <laughs> trash collection, justice system, military, although some of that all gets privatized as well. But Yeah, but in, in all cases, there's some private involvement. But it's kind of who's in control. Food. We, the government doesn't make food, but it, we, the government's role is to keep it safe, Right. We have to have it safe. So we have the, you know, the FDA and you know, it has agencies that do that. Workplaces have to be safe. The, you know, that's the regulatory, uh, you know, purpose of the state to make sure that people aren't harmed and they are safe, and and that we can say, uh, we can say, our purpose is to create public things like clean air and health and safety and all that that everyone has. So that's like you know, that's sort of a big idea. You know, just because we're running out of time, a couple of other quick things, more at the ground level, you know. One is, I always say, when you hear those business is more efficient or the government doesn't have the money, you know, the same thing, you know, government should be run by a business. We hear the same things over and over again. you got to knock those down right away. Right. Right. You know, you got to put, like, efficiency. Okay, tell us what you're going to spend less on. It may not be what we want you to spend less on. Run government like a business? Uh-uh. We should be effective and manage well. But we got to serve everybody, so you have to like knock those out of the park. Then you have to pay attention, as I was saying earlier. You have to watch as the proposals come, and a lot of times, you know, often it's all about math. You just lift up the math of it. They say, "Hmm, you're going to do it cheaper." Well, let me let's just do the math, and it turns out it's pretty clear it can't be done cheaper, or it can't be done better. So you actually have to get into the weeds as well and point out, you know, how how services should be run if the you know with public control, with standards, with oversight, with all those things. And we have, you know, if folks are interested, we have a, our website's um, in the public dot org, and we have tons of tools and reports and research projects. In have, the uh, public dot org. 
Yeah, there's lots of stuff. Yeah, and I can be reached through that as well. Okay. Um, so <laughs> I'm looking for your sequel, the collectivization of everything, but that's another another conversation <laughs> about whether everything yeah. is apropos there. But uh, Donald Cohen, if people want to get your book, I assume at our local independent bookshops, um, there are going to be copies uh, available, right? Yeah, well, there are some. Some will have it, some will not, but they can all order it if they don't have it. Um, that, you know, you could also just, if you want to just do online, you could go to bookshop.org. Most independent bookstores are already linked to bookshop.org. So even if you go to your local bookstore and do it online, you know, they, that's the independent network. That's the non-Amazon network. Did I understand Amazon, that course, there might be an audio book coming? There will be some time later this month. I'm not sh- sh- sure of the details, but yes, there is an audio book coming out this month. Okay. Um, at this workshop at UMass, at the Labor Center, which is going to start at 5 o'clock, um, are people going to break? What's going to be the format? Are you going to speak and break up into groups? How is this going to work? Uh, I uh, yes, I'm going to speak for a little bit, but then we'll turn it into a discussion and and discussion and strategy and you know let's let's understand what the, what you know I'm not from Massachusetts, so let's talk about some of the things that are happening in Massachusetts. What are folks seeing? How might we address those things? Um, you know, I'm in I'm actually in Boston right now, and there is a proposal that's just getting underway to do a public-private partnership for Bunker Hill Community College that would give a private developer a 99-year lease. Uh, to operate and maintain it kind of sounds nuts. Um, and so that, that may come nuts. up actually because the, uh, you know, the, some of the folks out there are connected to folks here as well. So there will be things that will come up in terms of what folks are seeing in their community in the state. And we will try to, you know, sort of talk through each one. What are the flaws? How do you stop it? How do you intervene? How do you get in the, you know, what do you need to know to be able to do all those things? And what resources do we have that might be helpful to you? Yeah. You know, um, uh, people um, forget when Mitt Romney was governor here in Massachusetts. He was a, a late arrival to the race, and he he won. We have this anomalous thing where we send uh, people to Congress. It's almost uh, completely a blue delegation from Massachusetts, and our attorney general is a blue, and then we get a red governor. That's why we got Mitt Romney. His idea for community college mm-hmm. was to privatize community colleges. And mm-hmm. as a result, bookstores in community colleges were privatized. And of course, yeah. at first there were great deals until mid-semester when people needed textbooks to... Uh, exactly. And, and we just saw the profit motive. I mean, I, I don't want to get too sort of Marxian about it, but the profit motive, surplus value that he called it, is just an added cost. Yep. Well, here's one thing. I don't know if I have time, but one thing I often say is, listen, businesses do one thing. They sell stuff. Right. So, what do they care about? What do they pay attention to? How many they sell? What it costs to make? What the, what they what, what what the price is? What their market share is? Right. And how much uh, how much their profit is? So and, you know, and, and, we all buy stuff, right? We all buy stuff, but you know, we care about other things. Right. <laughs> and so they're in. You know, private prisons have bed guarantees in their contracts. Keep the beds filled at ninety or somewhere a hundred percent. Or pay anyway. But we That's have this strange, we have this strange added motivation, which is let's make sure that behaviors are corrected. We call it a correctional system. I wish we had more time, um, and I yeah. know you have to run because you have the workshop to get to. It is Donald Cohen. Yep. Um, the book is a privatization of everything. It sounds wonderful. It'll be in your independent bookstore. And um, Donald, uh, good luck in this uh, workshop. Live I wish I was uh, free to go see it. But in the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's-